I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Hello, everybody. Hello. It's so nice to talk to you again. I know we did one week ago, not two, but one week ago. One? We had a bonus episode. Yeah, and I, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed that uh, a bit. Our rambling about <laughs> Disney. I bet it was pretty rambly. I did what I could. <laughs> <laughs> when we finished, you know, kept thinking of even more stories we didn't include. I know. We've really good stories. Yeah, like uh, the, the video in Epcot that broke the, the whole uh, crowd we were in just having awkward silence and also the cast member had to figure out how to fix it who who called yeah. other cast members and is like it's it's not working <laughs> in just a perfect tone of voice yes or, or being in the magic kingdom the day after the super bowl when there were like super bowl champs having a special parade yeah i totally forgot that <laughs> happened actually oh yeah and everybody in their jerseys like did you did you plan to is there just a local fan base for the Chiefs? <laughs> lots of stuff happened. <laughs> lots of things. There were all the extra snacks we ate. Forgot about That's a lot true. of snacks. I mean, it was not a thorough dining review. No. But, yeah. But that brings us to our usual content once again, our, our uh, fortnightly dive through the, the lessons of history. Yeah. And one thing that I think is especially interesting or especially valuable about history is as sort of a, a laboratory of action. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, what actions were taken in response to past crises? What effect did they have? And, and uh, can we learn anything for, for what is happening in the current moment? Okay. So today we're going to look at one response to a recent viral epidemic that uh, highlighted the inequalities of American society. Oh, this is going to be an uplifting episode. It might get a bit heavy because today we're going to learn about the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, better known as ACT UP. Mentally prepare. <laughs> uh, so AIDS entered the public record in June 1981 when the CDC put out a case report of a group of gay men in Los Angeles suffering from a rare pneumonia, indicating they uh, all had a severely suppressed immune system. It's never good when it starts with a rare pneumonia. <laughs> uh, so today, of course, we're aware of isolated cases of AIDS in the U.S. and uh, even more so outside uh, of American borders, going back to the, to the 60s, even the 50s. But this is the beginning of the disease's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next year, after AIDS was described and considered an epidemic by the CDC, with what we now know are a thousand confirmed deaths, the first question about it is raised in a White House briefing room. The reporter Lester Kinsolving would be laughed off for years whenever he brought up the subject of AIDS. In fact, he did it roughly annually. Oh. In this first exchange, he himself was also laughing and joking. Don Francis was a CDC uh, epidemiologist working on AIDS from the, the earliest days and has shared many of the institutional roadblocks put up that he saw working from the CDC. Things like not getting enough money to set up a proper lab, uh, their request for research and prevention funds getting laughed at, they couldn't even buy airplane tickets to go pick up blood specimens from New York mm -hmm. to bring back to Atlanta where the CDC is based. Yeah. One quote from a famous uh, PBS Frontline interview, 
I shifted at the direction of the higher levels of CDC to make a plan of prevention. It went to Washington, and the word that we got back from Washington, as best as, as, best as I can recall, was something like, no, we're not going to fund it, and we want you to look pretty and do as little as you can. Aha. Uh-huh. Part, part of looking pretty is the fact that the National Institutes of Health had $8 million in grant money for AIDS research in the early years that it just sat on reviewing grant proposals, but not actually granting the grants. So we're going to act like we're doing something, but not do anything. Right, right. Look, we just approved all this grant money. Did it go to actual research? Well, you know, we, we have to be careful uh, to, to fund the right research. We have to be very uh, uh, cautious. We have to take our time. Yeah, none of that matters if you don't fund any research. Yeah. Uh, back to Don Francis, one metaphor he liked to use was one of, uh, was of the fire department. They come out, they act as quickly as possible, because if they were to just sit and deliberate in the driveway, by the time they turn on the hoses, the house has been lost. Yeah. But this is not the story we're telling. We're telling the story of the grassroots. That was just some background to point out that uh, it became clear to the communities affected that they would have to have grassroots efforts because the, the public health apparatus that is supposed to be responding was not, uh, was failing at every step of the way. So it uh, fell to the affected, the infected, and then the people close to them to, to uh, take matters into their own hands. Mm-hmm. One of the most effective early groups was Gay Men's Health Crisis, or the GMHC. It was founded in January 1982, only seven months after the first documentation of the disease. Mm-hmm. The founders were Nathan Fain, Larry Kramer, Lawrence D. Mass, Paul Popham, Paul Rappaport, and Edmund White. Uh, they had a 24-hour crisis hotline run from one of their members' living rooms. Oh, uh, they solicited private donations for medical research. They distributed free literature to the community when major media had a total blackout. Mm-hmm. This is just a few years after two major medical scares, right? Uh, the the poison Tylenol capsules and uh, the, the first outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Mm-hmm. And those were both front page news for weeks at a time, but not nearly as dangerous and deadly as, as AIDS, which was barely mentioned anywhere, never on the front page for years. Yeah. GMHC ran their own support groups. They trained doctors in caring for, for AIDS patients, caring for uh, their families. They provided all the services they could while the city, state, and federal public health infrastructure would not. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry Kramer himself, one of these founders, was a firebrand. Whatever happened wasn't enough. And you can't blame him when people kept getting sick and kept dying and dozens became hundreds, became thousands so very quickly. Yeah. So in 1983, he left GMHC out of concern. It wasn't politically active enough. Mm -hmm. It was a reactive body trying to do the work of bodies that are there to already do the work. They're just not. Let's be proactive. Let's wake the world up. Mm-hmm. which caused a big rift within the group. And yes, he, he departed in uh, 1983. Larry Kramer, a famous playwright, yes. uh, which we should mention. Yes. I believe he came up in, in the early portion of your uh, Angels in America yeah. episode, laying out the background for AIDS in American theater. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly The Normal Heart, mm-hmm. one of his most known works. Uh, it's fairly... Maybe even very autobiographical. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. Kind of autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, inspired by his time with and exit from uh, the GMHC. 
Uh, he, he said later that he tried to make his self-insert character Ned Weeks as obnoxious as possible to atone for how he treated these others who, who were his friends, who were his allies. They had a disagreement about the the uh, goals they should be aiming for and, yeah. and the methods to reach them. But he, he felt bad about being so personally rough with them. Yeah. But the, the points that he was trying to make are, are exemplified in an essay, uh, 1,112 and Counting, published in March 1983, uh, which is just angry. It is a very angry essay. I, I do encourage people to read it. It attacks every part of the American health system, uh, like the CDC and the uh, NIH and Congress as well, for denying funds, uh, like New York's hospitals for inadequate response and bigoted treatment of patients, uh, insurance companies for not covering experimental treatments, and a disease when any treatment would be, by definition, experimental. Uh, and just the plight of the uninsured. Even if there were drugs, people can't get them. Wow. Strangely still relevant. The, the essay attacks Mayor Ed Koch, the federal government, anyone who would have the power to move them but isn't. Long, long attacks on the, the respectable mainstream gay community uh, and the closeted gay men who would rather save face than save lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the part of the article wasn't to just complain and, and spread hate, but, but to raise anger and fear for a very specific reason, to move readers into action. Mm -hmm. uh, it opens with the line, If this article doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men may have no future on this earth. Our continued existence depends on just how angry you can get. Yeah. And it closes with, Volunteers needed for civil disobedience. Yeah. So he continued in this effort, not so much alone, but without a, a, an organized group around him for several years. Yeah. He did not make a lot of friends, Larry Kramer. Mm -hmm. He was not interested in making friends. He was interested in raising, raising issues and saving lives. Until March 1987, when the situation was not much better. In fact, if you look at the numbers, far, far worse. Exponential growth. Yeah. Uh, sheer numbers of victims had finally forced a national conversation, helped along by the fact that viruses have no morality. It was spreading into straight and white communities. Mm -hmm. But nothing had slowed the spread. So Kramer appeared as a replacement speaker at the New York Lesbian and Gay Center and, and gave a speech that is essentially an updated version of the previous essay, just with 1987 numbers rather mm -hmm. than 1983 numbers. So he began by asking two-thirds of the attendees to stand, then telling them in five years they'd all be dead. Okay. Two days later, 300 volunteers showed up to be the founding members of AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, the very first Monday night ACT-UP meeting. Mm-hmm. They were a nonpartisan group of individuals united in anger and committed to using direct action to end the AIDS crisis. Now, what do we mean when we say direct action? Yeah. Let's take their very first action as an example. In that same month of March 1987, AZT became the first FDA-approved drug treatment for AIDS at a cost of $10,000 a year. Uh, in fact, that, that approval came just one week after ACT UP's founding. Mm-hmm. So their first action was to shut down Wall Street traffic in front of the FDA's New York office, get arrested for their nonviolent protest, and bring major attention to the incompatibility of healthcare and the profit motive. Yeah. Who are you really helping if it costs $10,000 a year to be helped? Yeah. What's the point of having a treatment if people can't afford it? 
A quote from, from one of their early members, we found out that if you could identify an obvious problem, if you could get the media on board about it, if you could get two to 300 ACT UP people sitting in at a very particular target and making it very, very uncomfortable for the powers that were, you could affect very, very quick change. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what they did. You know, chaining themselves to desks, shutting down buildings, shutting down streets, marching in the most disruptive way they could, screaming their slogans so it was never, never unclear what they wanted. Yeah. And that they were fighting for their lives. And that leads up to their first national action, seize control of the FDA, to achieve an immediate goal of getting drugs into bodies. That that was their first major push uh, of stream of actions dedicated to drugs into bodies. Mm-hmm. So on October 11th, 1988, ACT UP shut down the FDA for a day. It was reported as the largest demonstration of its kind since the Vietnam War. Up to 1,500 people were in attendance. Okay. Uh, They shut it down by using their bodies to barricade the doors, the walkways, the driveways. When police started coming in to, to arrest demonstrators and loading them into buses to carry them away, they stopped the buses. Mm-hmm. The where where was this? FDA headquarters are in Maryland. Okay. So the the greater the greater Washington D.C. zone of influence. You know? Okay. Greater D.C. area that's mm-hmm. not actually D.C. Right, but when you need to to appear before Congress, it's not too uh, inconvenient to take the train in for the day. Now, the broader success of the action was due to the media training involved. Uh, members with media experience taught the rest how to appeal to reporters, how to make themselves, you know, appealing. And a number of demonstrators were designated as spokespeople. Spokespeople who were valuable because they came from across the country. Any given network affiliate had a local angle to their story. You just take a look at, at the, the people presenting themselves with these placards with their names and their hometowns mm-hmm. written on them. There's a guy from Dallas. We will go talk to the guy from Dallas. Yeah. The, the preparation also included studying the FDA approval process in detail, so that when it's time to talk about demands, they had specific, actionable demands that would lead to life-saving drugs being tested for safety and efficacy and put to market faster. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just give us the drugs, it's, look, here's the roadblocks in your system, here's how to, to streamline them, and here's why it's necessary. Yeah. Now, the same would be true in the 1990 takeover of the, NI, uh, of the National Institutes of Health, demanding openness in the drug trial process. Mm-hmm. They did their homework. ACT UP grew and spread, aided along by their sort of molecular organization structure. Uh, it was not a strict membership organization to begin with. It's just a group of people that hold open meetings every Monday. Yeah. 147 chapters were founded across the U.S. and worldwide. I believe 19 countries had ACT UP chapters. Mm -hmm. Uh, They inherited the idea of the affinity group from the civil rights uh, movement and the women's movement. Affinity groups were were small, small enough that everyone would have a personal connection, just you and a group of your friends. Yeah. Uh, They would incubate their own actions. They would be independent. They would focus on a specific interest. Uh, Is it youth issues? Is it the schools? Is it housing? Is it uh, uh, homeless advocacy? Are, are you talking to the Puerto Rican community? Are, are you talking to, uh, are, are you creating art? Yeah. Affinity groups for everybody. Uh, and they would support one another. It, mm-hmm. It's easier to uh, 
link arms as you get dragged off uh, uh, by the NYPD for your arrest if you know personally and trust implicitly the people you're locking arms with. Yeah. Some affinity groups that are especially notable for their legacies include uh, Grand Fury and Diva TV. Diva TV is an acronym for Damned Interfering Video Activist Television. <laughs> they, they love acronyms. I gotta say, mostly backronyms from the way they read yeah. uh, across these groups. But uh, that was an affinity group that produced and distributed video documenting AIDS activism. Quite a lot of uh, ACT UP's influential work is preserved to this day in, in living color due to Diva TV. Uh, programs would be distributed to public access shows, film festivals, wherever else they could get them in front of people's eyes. Yeah. Here's what's really happening on the streets, not what the New York Times is saying, not what the CBS Evening News is saying, what actually happened. Yeah. Uh, Grand Fury was an artist collective that started as an affinity group before going independent. And they were responsible for, I guess, the, the visual language of ACT UP, in a sense. Uh, they made ACT UP's most famous image, the Silence Equals Death poster. Mm -hmm. The stark black poster, pink triangle in the center, Silence Equals Death beneath it, in white all caps. Yeah. One action they, they uh, undertook was hanging signs with valuable AIDS education and anti-capitalist uh, uh, points in plain sight designed to look like innocuous signage. Mm -hmm. In, in the exact same uh, form and style as you would see, like, no loitering after 6 p.m. On, on a park gate. It's instead talking about how the number of homeless is much less than the number of uh, vacant homes in New York City. Yeah. There you go. Uh, they once replaced the New York Times paper boxes, or rather the papers inside the boxes, with the New York Crimes, a lookalike paper filled with AIDS information. Mm-hmm. Uh, all Grand Fury work is in the public domain, by the way. Do what you will with it. Go look, go read, go share. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you go on their website and, and you look at everything they, they have in there, uh, you can not only just take it for your own use because it's in uh, the public domain, but they also show uh, examples of it hanging in cities, in public places, and the the homophobic graffiti that often goes up on their posters, on their signage, mm -hmm. just to see what sort of reaction it gets out of people. One of ACT UP's most well-known actions was the first Stop the Church, mm -hmm. uh, a major landmark, a protest against New York's uh, Cardinal O'Connor aimed at the church's influence in city politics. Mm -hmm. Now, there was heavy, heavy debate across uh, their Monday meetings on how to achieve that goal. How do we separate the faith from the institution? Is it our job to separate the faith from the institution for people? Uh, is the worship service the right venue or maybe the church's office? How do we show that our problem is with O'Connor and his messages? Is our problem only with O'Connor? Like, mm -hmm. the, the, it's a, an open democratic process. This, this was all uh, hammered out and, and hotly debated. So they settled on a die-in at St. Patrick's Cathedral during the homily on December 10th, 1989, when Mayor Koch was in attendance. Mm -hmm. One bit of evidence that uh, Cardinal O'Connor was more of a political figure that, uh, and that, that this was really a, a, a meeting of influential power brokers in the city. Mayor Koch was Jewish. Oh. Like, yeah. it wasn't exactly his church. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not where he frequented every week for his own uh, own faith. Right. 
So you have some members posing as ushers, handing out an imitation program that listed their their arguments and their reasons for demonstrating to parishioners. Mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, this is today's reading, these are today's hymns, it's here's the actual facts compared to Cardinal O'Connor's lies about, say, condom use. Yeah. Yeah. And this was not a secret event. This was not a sting operation. This this was publicized. This was widely known. Wide enough that between four and a half and seven thousand uh, demonstrators were gathered outside, circling the cathedral. Those are the people that, that were actually frightening. Uh, not the few dozen to, uh, I mean, over a hundred people inside as well. Uh, but it's the seven thousand outside that are, that are going to make people nervous. Yeah. Uh, that included allied groups like WHAM, Women's Health Action and Mobilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, the die-in continued as planned, silently, symbolically, as die-ins are, uh, as others distributed their fact sheets until it was clear that the Cardinal would just ignore the entire event. And that's when things got a little rowdy. Yeah. Including some ACT UP members reading the fact sheet at the top of their voices. Another jumped on a pew and shouted, Stop killing us over and over again. Again, th- this is all on video, thanks to DivaTV. And uh, actually, DivaTV wasn't explicitly founded until a little bit later, but like, thanks to the video archives that they inherited and maintained. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the inside of the cathedral became a competition to make the biggest impact. Act up trying to be as loud and disruptive as possible. We are raising the issues. You will not ignore us. We are here. We have points to make. And O'Connor and the organ trying to drown them out. Yeah. No, thank you. We, we are... Just no. So 43 protesters inside the church were arrested. 68 outside. And the reaction to Stop the Church is the barometer, I would say, for what people really think of ACT UP and their mission to end the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it is blamed for alienating people and framed as an attack on Christianity. Uh, one member who was a practicing Catholic did uh, a spit out the host. Mm-hmm. which was uh, one of the most focused on aspects of this protest that, that became, you know, a legend unto its own, was blown out of proportion, one might say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it's also the moment that the, the Catholic Church lost its grip on New York City politics uh, that has never been quite a solid sense. Uh, and, of course, its unassailable image Uh, And the Cardinal from that day began ministering to HIV-positive people for the first time. Mm. The point I would make is that a person being offended today is less important than a a life saved by condom use tomorrow. And any moral authority who would claim otherwise should be disregarded. Yeah. That's just me. (laughs) In in my script, I have a a break written here, but I'm going to be like you. I don't want to do a break. I want to keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Right. Live wild. <laughs> wild and free. So one of their longest term actions was the multi-year campaign to change the CDC definition of AIDS. Mm-hmm. AIDS is not a disease in the uh, traditional sense. It is a complex. It is a syndrome. That's what the S stands for. Mm-hmm. So the original definition was made from initial studies focused on gay men. So you got an AIDS diagnosis by exhibiting certain... Uh, um, opportunistic diseases. Yeah. Like PCP, that rare pneumonia, like uh, um like uh Carposi sar- sarcoma. Mm-hmm. But that list of diseases was not, you know, uh, exhaustive. For one, it included no gynecological disorders. Yeah. Because they were only looking at men. Yeah. 
they they weren't acknowledging that it could be in anyone else. Right. Women were much less likely to get AIDS diagnosis when it was clear to, you know, the, the people living with their condition, no, I got AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. The doctor can't say I do because of the written CDC definition, but like, I do. Yeah. So without an AIDS diagnosis, you couldn't get benefits uh, that by this point existed for AIDS patients, like social security disability, which would be necessary to fight the disease and live a life with health and dignity that, that some people got and some people didn't because of that definition. So an affinity group of 24 people spent four years leading a campaign of demonstrations and lawsuits and education, just, just a full court press of tactics to make an equitable definition. And dozens of grassroots organizations across the country joined in support. And after this fight for years, they added a, a host of new opportunistic diseases to the definition, as well as adding in the T-cell count of 200 or fewer. Yeah. There you go. So from that point now, uh, we, we have this official, uh, uh, we have this more equitable definition so that now more women are being counted among AIDS sufferers, uh, poor people, uh, anyone outside those initial studied populations mm -hmm. of urban white gay men. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a in, in current AIDS history that has looked back, there's a, a, a huge wave in the late 70s of cases that we would now recognize as AIDS patients, but that was just like, oh, that's just something that happens to homeless people in New York. Yeah. It's just this, we don't know what to call it, and like, nobody's paying for, for postmortems on these people. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So after years of successful work focused on the specific needs for treatment and prevention, the scope broadened. Eventually, after all of these victories, drugs into bodies wasn't as electrifying a, a, a thing anymore because there were more drugs getting into more bodies. It's a good problem to have succeeding. Mm -hmm. Also, their, their broadening was in part due to the group's growth and development. It wasn't just a bunch of relatively privileged white young gay men enraged at being cast out to die anymore. Yeah. Because they had gathered women and immigrants and the poor and a multiracial coalition of people who were previously used to being cast out to die. Yeah. Another quote from one of their members, what AIDS revealed was not the problem of the virus. What AIDS revealed was the problems of our society. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, the slogan, healthcare is a right, was part of ACT UP from the beginning. In fact, they created it. Mm -hmm. uh, but as uh, uh, more of their goals were checked off the list, uh, the goal of universal healthcare steadily climbed higher and higher on their list of demands. Yeah. ACT UP is considered by some the root of the modern healthcare movement. Mm-hmm. Another broadening moment was the Day of Desperation in 1991, about contrasting the government's willingness to pay for billions to end lives rather than save them. This was one week after the uh, beginning of Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, day of Desperation started the night before. I guess there was a, a Day of Desperation Eve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a successful interruption of Dan Rather's live broadcast in the CBS studio. Yeah. Uh, which was then, of course, rebroadcast as news on all of CBS's competitors. Hey! <laughs> CBS affiliates wouldn't talk about it. Of course they wouldn't. No. <laughs> but ABC, NBC. Yeah. There you go. 
on the day itself, ACT UP delivered coffins to city offices they, they, that were responsible for AIDS deaths. Uh, they protested each borough's president's office. Affinity groups demanded housing and an end to the homeless shelter system. Mm-hmm. Homes Not Shelters was another uh, very visible slogan and goal of ACT UP. Yeah. Uh, and they occupied and shut down Grand Central Station during rush hour. Mm-hmm. Hanging banners off of the times tables, uh, larger banners lifted to the ceiling on balloons. Yeah. Now, this is usually the part where I'd start to rack, uh, wrap up and, and talk about the end of our topic. Mm-hmm. But ACT UP is still active, so I can't. Yeah. Let's take a look at some of their accomplishments instead. Okay. Uh, they drastically, drastically cut the amount of time it takes to approve new drugs for use, especially in the case of active epidemics. Yeah. Uh, They invented the now common practice of parallel track drug testing. Uh, What this means is once a drug is tested to be uh, non-toxic, it is put in blind tests for efficacy and released to affected populations at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you have your your clinical trial as well as your public trial running on parallel tracks. Yeah. Again, great way to get drugs into bodies. There it is right there. Uh, They got people living with a disease on the clinical trial planning board for the first time ever. Yeah. They ended the exclusion of women from clinical trials. Uh, They found permanent housing for Haitian refugees with AIDS that had been kept in camps in Guantanamo Bay. Also, many more local victories. I've been primarily speaking about ACT UP New York, if if you haven't noticed, as the founding chapter and as uh, one of the most active chapters, especially in organizing their their nationwide uh, actions. Mm -hmm. But the amount of of good that ACT UP chapters did for their local communities cannot be overstated. If I were to list them all, that would be the entire episode. But we're talking self-operated needle exchanges, education drives, condom distributions outside of schools, uh, and just on street corners. Yeah. Just an incredible amount of uh, work being done, direct action in your community. Mm -hmm. I've been talking about the activists and not who they were acting against until now. uh, A bit of a curtain reveal moment. Because the member of the U.S. medical establishment who worked closest with ACT UP in the end and who voices the most respect for their success is the then and current director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He got that job in 1984 and still holds it to this day, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Mm -hmm. the current uh, celebrity doctor in the midst of COVID-19. Yeah. He he was actually an immunologist by trade before he became, you know, a a research-based bureaucrat. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, he is actually really, really involved with early AIDS research. Of course, being a director, mostly the funding thereof. Yeah. But it's, uh, he, he knows his stuff, talking about uh, the possibility of vaccines and how we'll never actually know the possibility of vaccines until we find one, if ever. Because yeah. it's not that kind of disease. Yeah. Uh, I guess an- another name that comes up is the uh, one of the, the targets that they attacked mo- most vitriolically was Governor Cuomo of New York. But, you know, the other one. Yeah. <laughs> History repeats itself that uh, Governor oh, Cuomo would it? say the right things a lot in public, but then actually use a, a pandemic to uh, exercise uh, his authoritarian impulses. What do you know? Hmm. So, darling, what have you learned? 
I wouldn't say I've learned it, but let's just like <laughs> history repeats mm-hmm. is such a strong thing. I said it at the beginning. Yeah. Well, okay. I finally just finished my book that I've been reading since the beginning of January, mm-hmm. which was Pandemic 1918, mm-hmm. a book about the Spanish flu. Right. Which is very, very different than AIDS. Right. When you talk about like what it is. Mm-hmm. But there is so many parallels between that and the AIDS crisis and what's going on now and just like the way things are treated mm-hmm. by the government and how like what healthcare is, who has access, who gets it, mm-hmm. who we care about. Mm-hmm. It just continues to repeat. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, and it's more infuriating every time. A virus does not care who you are. But the health infrastructure of the United States of America does. Yep. Yes. Yep. One thing I didn't talk about because I I was focused on, you know, dates and places and and concrete things, concrete uh, uh, changes, is how valuable, you know, hearing the members of ACT UP talk about it in their own words, the the sense of community was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a support group, but it did serve that sort of function to people. It was a place to talk about what was happening to you. Because you had to talk about what was happening in order to talk about what to do about it. Mm-hmm. So in their outreach to people who needed help, it gathered more people who, who found a purpose, found a thing to do. And so uh, both in their ability to, to get uh, you know, concrete objectives met and to provide community, there, there are many members who credit it uh, with the fact that, they, that some have lived to this day or, or lived decades longer at least, than they ever expected to when they got their diagnosis. Yeah. And one point I'd like to, to just bring up about present times that we're living in is that our current pandemic and our current moment are very, very different from uh, HIV and AIDS in 1987. Yes. But I think the example is still valuable, and looking at those differences uh, is a place to not dismiss the example, but to see it as problem-solving opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are direct actions that do not require packing bodies into spaces, yeah. which is something you can only do when, you know, we're talking about a disease that isn't passed through casual contact. Yeah. Not so valuable for one that is. Yeah. Uh, and there are means of communication and media access that were unthinkable 30 years ago, but are commonplace today. Mm-hmm. Food for thought. Yeah. Well, I think example of that mm-hmm. is like when you're talking about like the videos and all this film that was then released in all these places to be seen in a way that wasn't see- being seen. Mm-hmm. Now, social media takes that place of sharing stories and of, mm-hmm. of this is what I am experiencing. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Quite often contradicts what the media tells you. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is where like right now it's the whole thing of where that's where you get sometimes more truthful information. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to come into the main media of this is what right. the actual situation is. Look at this nurse weeping about uh, uh, the experience they're having. Yeah. Yeah. Or the actual difficulties in getting a test or protective material. It's yeah. not being exaggerated. This is actually the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one uh, uh, of the great lessons to learn from ACT UP is that every oh, but what about uh, uh, response? Every, well, you have to be reasonable. Every, well, it's just such a small part of the population argument 
is met with, I'm dying. Yeah. How dare you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, people are literally, literally fighting for their lives. Yes. Uh, and the lives of everyone tomorrow, the next day, in an epidemic, in a pandemic, with an exponential curve. Yeah. It's literally life and death. Anybody who, who uh, tries to be, be the wise person hiding behind, you know, charts and balance sheets is a killer, is just a dispassionate one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, we're going to take a quick break and uh, read some letters. Yeah. We are back. Welcome back, everybody. I mean, that was a long 10, 12 seconds. Oh, yeah. Or less. Yeah, I hope you stretched, got some water. <laughs> but that means it is time to read some letters. And our first letter comes in from Ramona. Hello. Ramona writes in uh, with a couple of prompts. Uh, for one, one of her favorite old movies is Mansion in Uniform, a 1931 German film about a schoolgirl's crush on her, her uh, female teacher. So it's uh, one of the first LGBT movies that uh, she saw as she began moving into that community herself. And also as an example of, you know, the the culture and life of of Weimar Republic Germany, uh, which, you know, something you're not going to see in American films in 1931. No. Which is why we ask people about their favorite old movies. Uh, so, so while, of course, uh, the global rise of fascism and the Nazi uh, party in particular tried to destroy uh, just the, the idea that there is such a thing as, as an LGBT community or that these people are deserving of, of life and love and dignity, uh, the fact is it happened and they were around first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the film did exist in the U.S. thanks to the support of uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, although it was heavily censored uh, until the 1970s and was not screened again in its native land until 1977. Yeah. But for the more recent prompt, I wanted to know how uh, the, the global pandemic is affecting people's lives, what they're doing during this unusual time in our lives. Ramona's day-to-day life ha- hasn't been uh, changed, uh, hasn't been disrupted too much, uh, except that, you know, the feeling of it being uh, forced rather than choiced is something that uh, I think we're all dealing with. Yes. But when she goes out carefully uh, and uh, interacts with people in, say, the grocery store, for instance, uh, she's been doing her best to inform essential workers about their rights and how effective and important uh, a work stoppage could be uh, at a critical time like this, which is absolutely correct. Yes. I mean, when, when I was saying there are things you can do beside, you know, uh, uh, shut down the highway with a line of bodies... A strike right now in the grocery sector would do so much not only for those workers, but I mean, this moment has the potential to launch uh, a, a very successful drive for a $20 federal minimum wage. Hell yeah. Why not? It could happen. Dream big. Actually, just dream for like basic rights. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> it's not that big. It's not that big. So thanks, Ramona. 
Uh, Isaac writes in, is unfortunately uh, experiencing a lot of uncertainty because of what is going on. Isaac has a job lined up out here in the Midwest, but unfortunately they are stuck on the East Coast waiting this out to see if they still have a job, which is really unfortunate. I hope everything goes right for you and it eventually works out. (laughs) Also, Isaac has picked up Doom Eternal. Is it a video game? Yes, yes, it is a video okay. game. Okay, it's fun, apparently. <laughs> Thanks for writing it, Isaac. Thanks, Wishing Isaac. you the best. Yes. Uh, Peter is also uh, filling their time with uh, some games. Also, some some uh, library uh, borrows, including Britain's Empire, Resistance, Repression, and, and Revolt. But Peter also includes some advice for me to to ditch the beard and just go for a big old Civil War-style mutton chop look. That is, unfortunately, though, the area where you're a little patchy. Yeah, you don't have to tell everybody, gosh. Like, turn. It wouldn't work well for him. Thanks, Peter. He's got kind of little bald spots right there. Just read Rosemary's letter. (laughs) Just read the letter from Rosemary. Well, Rosemary sends us some really nice dog pictures first off. They're very cute. Thank you. Rosemary also answers uh, an old prompt of favorite piece of public art, uh, which is Blucifer. The giant horse statue that uh, I believe we had several people write in about. I think that's true, yeah, Um, at a Denver International Airport. I'm pretty positive because I'm pretty sure that's the only reason I know Lucifer (laughs) is because we had like a bunch of people tell us they loved it. Um, But it's like a 20 feet tall horse Mm -hmm. if uh, you didn't listen to that episode. According to urban myth, Though factual truth, the statue fell on the sculptor and killed him. (laughs) Lucifer demands blood, I see. Yes, makes sense. Uh, Rosemary's favorite old movie is The Seventh Seal. Oh, Max von Sydow. Big ups to a real one. And as for uh, how they've been handling things right now, Rosemary's in Colorado, and luckily things for her has been pretty... Okay, so Rosemary's been doing what she can to help other people she knows and and just just getting through, which is great. Also, Rosemary shared a show suggestion, which I'm not going to tell you, but it's a good one. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. Darlin, if someone would like to send us a letter, where can those go? Historyhuntingspodcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your show suggestions like Rosemary, your, your corrections, your questions, any stories you might want to share, as well as answers to our regular prompts. And for next week's prompt, I need some recipe inspiration. <laughs> okay. Cooking at home a lot. Yeah. Gotta make it interesting. Gotta make things interesting. Tell me it can be a favorite recipe you have going on right now. It could be your favorite recipe overall. Whatever. It can be homemade bologna if you've got 60 pounds of... It could be how to make homemade bologna. It could be... It could be something very complicated of like bake this pasta from scratch. Or it could be here's my directions for making a perfect grilled cheese. Stewed crackers. Yeah, I, if you aren't following the History Honey's Instagram, I recently shared a very interesting old cookbook <laughs> on Pennsylvania Dutch recipes mm-hmm. from the 50s. If you have 60 pounds of meat lying around, you can make your own bologna. <laughs> <laughs> so go check that out, if, you know, at History Honey's. 
So letters, historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. The Instagram is just at historyhoneys. And that's also true for the Facebook and the Twitter. Yep. We're being very efficient today, actually. Yes, we are. You can also leave us a rating and review on wherever you listen to us. Like, Apple Podcasts. Like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Whatever. You can also go tell a friend. Reach out to the people you love, the people you know, and the people curious about what Larry Kramer was up to in the 80s and 90s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We can be like a book club for you and your friends. You can listen to our podcast, and Mm -hmm. then you can chat with each other about our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the podcast you hear in the background, because our neighbor, apparently his speakers only go to one level, and it's too loud. He listens to nothing interesting on NPR. (laughs) He listens to the worst, most boring Mm -hmm. parts of NPR. Yeah, yeah. I hate our neighbor. (laughs) But one thing I would also recommend you check out is not just us, but uh, one of my other projects, uh, Six Feet Under, the actual play podcast I'm on. Uh, We recently put up the last episode of our Monster Hearts 2 uh, campaign, sort of a mini-series, only eight episodes, and I love it dearly. Of the creative projects I'm involved in for over the last, like, dozen years, (laughs) this is by far my favorite. I think it's the best. It's really important to me, and I encourage you to check it out. Again, I'm very, very proud of how this turned out. Yeah. Link links in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.